Good morning. Glad you're here today to worship with us. We hope you've had a great weekend so far. I'm glad we can start a new week together. We have a lot of visitors here today. Thank you for being here. And we have some that are in town to see family. We have some that have just come to worship with us here from the community. Thank you for being here. Uh, we always like our visitors to know who we're trying to be here at Great Oaks. We put Church of Christ on the sign because we're trying to simply follow Jesus Christ as best we can. We want to just be Christians. We don't think God wants us to be denominational. We don't think God wants us to follow all the things uh, men have created through the years. And so we're just trying to follow Jesus Christ and open the Bible as best we can and do what it says. If you have any questions about us, questions about Christianity, uh, please let us know. But we're really glad you're here today. And let me also just say to everybody, Merry Christmas. It's been exciting to hear everybody's plans, just talking about plans for tonight, plans for tomorrow, get-togethers and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's a fun time of year for a lot of people. I see a lot of reds as I get up here, a lot of Christmas colors that people are wearing. Um, uh, if you haven't studied Christmas before, if you haven't studied the life of Jesus on that, we don't know when Jesus was born. The Bible doesn't tell us. A few people have asked me that in the last week. The Bible doesn't say but as long as people aren't saying things the Bible doesn't say, I think most of us are thankful that a lot of people are thinking more about Jesus this time of year. In fact, I was reading an article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal written by somebody who said he doesn't believe in God at all. He said, but there's something about Jesus and the way people talk about it this time of year that makes me want to go to church. And so I assume he's going to church somewhere today. And if that's you today, if you come in today, Christ hasn't really been a big part of your life, maybe even worshiping with us online we hope Christ will become an even bigger part of your life, but we're glad you're here. We're sure trying to live for Him as best we can all year long. We'd love for you to join us in that. And we're always happy to talk about Jesus Christ. And so our lesson this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ. I've called it Thinking About Gifts, and I hope it'll be a good study. Let's start with prayer, and then we'll jump into it. God, thank you so much for being our God and loving us and guiding us. We're in awe of who you are. We're so thankful for our blessings. We know we don't deserve them, but you've always been good to us. God, we're thankful we can come together today and worship. We're thankful for our visitors who are with us, some who have traveled. God, please keep them safe as they go back home. God, I pray that as we've worshipped you today, our hearts have already been with you. And I pray, God, that as we open your word, we'll be challenged by it and will help us want to follow you even more. God, we do pray we can be a light for you to the world, that you'll shine through us, that people will see you living in us. And God, whatever we have going on with our families and friends this holiday season, uh, please live in us and shine in us. God, as we do open your word, I pray that what is said will be what you want to be said, and that we'll grow from it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the things that makes this time of year fun is gifts. Maybe especially as a kid, you think about this is a gift-giving time of year. Um, I remember as a kid, and I, I imagine almost everybody in this room has very similar memories as you grow up. You would see those gift-giving catalogs that would somehow would appear in your house, sometimes come in the mail. I hear now that they're all, most of them online. We'll talk about that later if you want. But, but So you get those gift-giving catalogs. It was just fun just to look at them, just to look and imagine of the stuff you might want for Christmas. Uh, for me growing up, it would, I would be excited on a Christmas Eve day for maybe the new He-Man figure, whatever that was going to be that might be under the tree tomorrow, or the latest Mario game on Nintendo, probably telling you more about myself than you want to know. But, but there were these, these gifts that, that you're excited about. And if I had to guess, probably all of us this year 
have spent time thinking about gifts. We've been planning, well, whatever age you are, you're either thinking about gifts for yourself, you're thinking about gifts you're getting for other people, you probably run to stores, you probably bought stuff on Amazon, you probably had deliveries come to your house, and a lot of this time of year is the gifts. Who are we getting gifts for? Who, who, have, I, who have I not thought about? What do I want to get this person? And you try to match up what's appropriate for the person. You want to show somebody that you care about them, that they're, they're really part of your life, And so gift-giving is a big part of it. Several times in the Bible that things are brought to Jesus that you might consider gifts. I don't know if the five loaves and two fish would count in that category, but there's things like that, where the the young boy's got five loaves and two fish, and they're brought to Jesus, and he multiplies them. But I'd like us to look at probably the best-known passage this morning where gifts were given to Jesus. And it happens near the very beginning of his life. So Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there. I'm going to have the verses up here, one or two at a time, but you may want to have the whole context in front of you. If you have a different translation, you might be able to see how it translates certain words differently, maybe, than what I've got up here. I have the New American Standard up here. It's a passage about bringing gifts to Jesus, pretty well-known passage about bringing gifts to Jesus. And we're just going to think through it today. So what I'd like us to do, we're going to walk through that section and, and just point out some things as we read through it. And then I'm going to come back to the outline, if you're keeping the outline with us, and try to highlight some things Christians have always seen in these gifts that were brought to Jesus. So here in Matthew chapter 2, I said it's a well-known passage. It's also a passage that maybe has some misconceptions in, that float around uh, even this time of year. So we'll try to make sure we see what the Bible says about those as we go through it. So verse 1, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. And before we see what they said, I want you to notice just a couple things here. So, this is after Jesus was born. And if you've studied that or not, as a lot of people point out this time of year, they probably were not there the day Jesus was born. You often you'll see pictures of the shepherds that came in the night Jesus was born. That did happen. Luke chapter, 12, Luke chapter 2 rather talks about that, how angels told the shepherds to come in, and they're gathered around that night with Jesus and the family. Uh, this happens after Jesus was born. This is something that comes later. You also know, notice they're, they're called magi. Your translation may say wise men. Uh, In the Old Testament, wise men in places like Babylon and Persia, the wise men were people who would try to interpret the stars and and give the king answers for what he should do. Daniel in the Old Testament was someone who was trained to be a Babylonian wise man. And some of this, they they were doing their best to try to figure out things. I picture in my own mind that they're doing things like, well, there was a meteor shower last night. That, that, that shows an army is going to come against the king. They're, you know, they're just trying to interpret the stars as, as best they can. I don't know how honestly it was done or dishonestly it was done. But these magi are coming. You do notice, by the way, it doesn't say they're kings. One of my favorite songs growing up was We Three Kings. Uh, it doesn't say they're kings. Broke my heart when I figured that out. But they're, they're wise men. And it doesn't say there's three of them. There's, there's going to be three gifts that they bring. We don't know how many there are. We just know it's plural, uh, magi, multiple of them. Could be two, could be ten. We have no idea. But they've come all the way from the east. Again, maybe Persia, Babylon. And they show up in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And they've got something to say. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Somehow... 
God has let these wise men know. Now, I don't know what they're doing to read the, the sky, the night sky. People in ancient times paid much more attention to the night sky than I do, maybe than you do. But I don't know what they're doing to try to read it. But God has let something happen in their life, their tradition, the star in some way, for them to know not only is that star doing weird things, but the king of the Jews has been born. Like they, they somehow know that. And so there's a whole story behind that that God has done that I wish we knew more about. But they show up and they ask, where's the king who's been born? And what's interesting is the actual king has no idea what they're talking about. And so verse 3, when Herod the king, so he's the one who's king here, he hears this and he's troubled by it. What, what, do, you mean there's a, what do you mean there's a king? <laughs> there's, a, there's a king that's been born and it says all Jerusalem with him. And this is one of the sad ironies of this passage. Because here are the Jews who should be looking for their king. The Old Testament has promised the Messiah over and over. And these Gentiles who are not Jews from the East, they show up and they're excited about it. And the Jews are not. Now some would be, and some Jews would follow Jesus. Many would not. But here Herod the king is not excited when he hears about this. And so he gathers together the chief priests and the scribes, the leaders of the Jews. And and he asks them, he doesn't know. He asks them, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they quote from what we call now Micah 5, verse 2, which in the Old Testament had prophesied very clearly. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they'd known that. They'd known it for years. The Bethlehem, which was also the city of David in the Old Testament, that the ruler to come was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so the chief priests tell Herod that's where he was supposed to be born. And so they, they call the Magi back in, verse 7. Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Uh, most people think that maybe the star uh, had appeared before Jesus' birth to start the journey uh, based on later in the passage Herod, who is, who is a really evil person in history, shows it here. He's going to have all the children ages 2 and below killed in the Bethlehem area because he feels threatened for his throne. So we wonder if maybe the star had appeared well before and he's just given some latitude to, to cover whatever kid could have been born in that time and beyond. But, but maybe whenever it was, he's asked them, when did that star appear? And so he sent them to Bethlehem. He said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him... Report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now what I just told you, uh, that you find out later in this chapter, Herod doesn't want to come worship the new king. Herod wants to kill the new king. He, he wants to be king. Uh, Herod is one of those people in history who will kill his own family to keep power. Uh, you find many of those. And so this is, this is not honest from Herod. So he sends the wise men to Bethlehem, because that's where they said the king was supposed to be born, When you find him, come tell me. After hearing the king, verse 9, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. By the way, it's probably a a time to point out, whatever this star was, it sure seems like this is something special God is doing that, that is up in the sky. Sometimes people look back and say, well, you know, somewhere around 4 BC, there was Jupiter sort of crossed over with the moon and it made a little bright. I, I don't think that's what was going on here. Now, if it is, 
you, know, you can tell me in heaven I had it all wrong. But, but I think what's going on, this sounds like this is something bigger than that. It sounds like this is something even more obvious, that it moves and, and, it, and it travels in some way. This feels, seems like God miraculously working in His world to bring the star over the place where the child is. So they're, they're following the star now, verse 10. When they see it, they're excited. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. One of the things people love about, the, about Matthew 2 and Luke 2, these stories of Jesus coming, is that joy just fills these chapters. So they're rejoicing. And then they come into the house. Again, something else that tells you it's probably not that same night that they show up in Bethlehem. Because now we're in a house. We're not in a manger or a barn or anywhere else. They come into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. By the way, one more thing to say here. Um, This probably happened, I said it wasn't that night. If I had to guess, this probably happened somewhere in the first month after Jesus was born, and here's why. Luke chapter 2 tells us that according to the custom, uh, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem at day 40 of his life. Because at day 40, there was a special purification ceremony you were supposed to participate in after your child was born. And so at day 40, they go to Jerusalem, and it sounds like in Luke 2, they leave from Jerusalem and go back to Nazareth. Uh, So wherever this happens, probably early, probably early and maybe in that first month before they begin uh, traveling around different places um, to hide uh, from Herod becomes part of this too. But then one last verse of this section. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Perhaps a dream is how God spoke to them to start with, to tell them that the king of the Jews had been born. We don't know, but God speaks to them in a dream. He says, don't go back to Herod. It's amazing how God, in, in Matthew 2 and Luke 2, He tells people that Jesus has come. He tells people the Messiah has come. But He does it in a way that still keeps Him safe because there's people who want to kill Him. And so the Magi show up, and, and God has told them, and, and we're excited, but, but He still protects Jesus because there's going to be great things that will be done in His life. Here's what's interesting to me just as you look back at this. In Christian history, Christians have always seen how fitting those gifts seem to be by the wise men. I don't think the wise men knew this at all. I don't think they had any clue that their gifts were so fitting for the life of Jesus. In fact, I I saw this last week, as far back as 200 AD, there's a Christian writer named Origen, and he was pointing out just how fitting these gifts seem to be because of the story of Jesus, because of what he would do, because of what he would do in the world. And so I'd like us to spend a few minutes walking through that. Why do Christians feel like these gifts seem so fitting for Jesus Christ and all He would do? You notice again in verse 11, these were the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I remember as a kid in Bible class having to memorize what the three gifts were, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, There were were gifts for royalty in part. Notice that to start with. Song of Solomon chapter 3 has this section where Solomon and his caravan are coming through and all three of those are mentioned in the context. Like this was something that involved kings. So they probably just brought them to honor the king. But I want us to notice in all three gifts, there's some fitting things that go along with the life of Jesus. I hope that'll make sense as we go. Let's try it. Number one, the first gift that was given, gold, reminds us of Christ's royalty. 
With all these, I'll try to point out why Christians have seen these are so fitting and then connect it to the life of Jesus. So why, why does gold remind us of royalty? Well, gold was what kings were often measured by. In fact, in the Old Testament, again, just looking around the Bible at these gifts where they take place, 1 Kings 10, 21, talking about Solomon. It says, All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, that was, uh, that was his house, were pure gold. None was of silver. It was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. That's how wealthy Solomon was. Silver is not even valuable. That's how kings were often measured. How much gold, how much money do we have? And so it's fitting that gold is brought to Jesus because he was going to be, and already was in truth, a king. In fact, Isaiah had prophesied that years before Jesus came to earth. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. It's a double prophecy, but the, the second part would refer to Jesus to come. It says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and notice the ruling part here, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He would be a king. He would be a ruler. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's, that's not just a person. Mighty God, Eternal Father. That's not just a person. Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah had prophesied this Messiah was going to be a ruler. And you might remember in the life of Jesus, the apostles were often so confused because Jesus wasn't actually ruling an army or anything. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to lead against the Romans. He wasn't trying to get the kingdom together. And, and they seemed so confused by that. Right up to the very end in Acts 1, they say, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? What they didn't realize was he was a ruler over something much bigger. He, would, he is the creator of the world. He is he's the one who made it all. He rules over it from high above an army or a nation. It's a spiritual kingdom. He rules over sin. He rules over death. He rules over everything that lives and breathes. As Revelation 17, 14 would call him, he is Lord of lords, King of kings. That has always been the Christian confession, that Jesus is Lord. That he's not just a nice man or a wise man or a good man who came to earth, but that he is truly Lord that He is the King over our lives, He is King over the world, He will judge His world one day. So fitting that they brought gold to Jesus because He would be a King. Secondly, Christians have found it fitting that frankincense was brought to Jesus because it reminds us of Christ's priesthood. Just like we did with gold, you can look around frankincense in the Bible, you can pull out a concordance if you'd like, and just notice how often frankincense is connected with worship. To God. For example, Exodus chapter 30 in the Old Testament, verses 34 and 35, there was this incense that was supposed to be offered in the, in the holy place before you know, the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, but the holy place in the Old Testament in the temple had this place of incense. And as he describes how you make the incense in Exodus 30, frankincense is part of that. I didn't put it up here, but Leviticus chapter 2 describes the grain offerings that were given to God repeatedly, and frankincense was part of those grain offerings over and over. This was something the priest used often 
And obviously something that was sort of valuable for these magi to bring it, to offer it to who they thought was the king of the Jews. You say, well, well, what does priesthood have to do with Jesus? Well, it was prophesied that the Messiah would not only be a king, he would be a priest. And, and I wouldn't have known how that fit together. They probably didn't either. How, how could a king also be a priest? But here in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, another prophecy about Jesus. It says, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch. You notice that, that Branch is capitalized B, not just because it's a name, because it refers to the coming Messiah. For he will branch out from where he is. Why do they call, why do they call the Messiah a branch? It's usually that description is what people think it means. It's going to start small. And he's just going to keep growing. Being born in a, a manger in Bethlehem is pretty small. Being born to poor parents the type of parents who gave the, the gift for the poor when they went to the temple to give that purification ceremony. That's pretty small. Being, being raised in Nazareth, that's pretty small, but he would just keep growing, and his kingdom would keep growing. And so his name is Branch, he says. He will build the temple of the Lord, not a physical temple, the spiritual temple of the Lord, the church. Verse 13, yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. So we've already seen that, but then notice this part. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. He'll be a priest, on, he'll be a priest and a king. You say, wait a second, wasn't, wasn't Jesus a carpenter? Like I thought Joseph was a carpenter, and he, and he was, and Jesus was raised to be a carpenter. In fact, Jesus in Mark 6 is called the carpenter. The people of Nazareth say, isn't this the carpenter? How does he know all this stuff that he's talking about? Yes, he was a carpenter, but as he would fulfill his life for God, and for the church and for the world, he would also serve as a priest. How so? Well, priests did several things. In the Old Testament, a priest was to be a go-between between God and the people. He would, he would pray for the people to God. He would offer sacrifices for the people to God. He was supposed to be a good example to the people of what holy living was supposed to look like. It wasn't going to be perfect in the Old Testament. He was a person too. And then once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer atonement for all the people, for all the sins. Jesus would fulfill all that. Maybe Hebrews 7 is the best place to point that out. In Hebrews 7, verses 25 through 27, notice how he says Jesus became a great high priest for us by doing all those things that a priest did. Verse 25, Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Don't miss how important that last part of that verse is. Jesus makes intercession for us. He is talking to God on our behalf. He's there for us. He knows how tough it is, as Hebrews will say before this, the Hebrew letter will say in chapters 2 and 4. He knows how tough it is, and he, He's there before God interceding for you and me. That is really special. He's a go-between between us and God. It was fitting, verse 26, for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. Not only is he a good example like the Old Testament priests were supposed to be, he's the perfect example. He shows us what life is supposed to be lived like. Christians have always asked themselves, and it's appropriate, what would Jesus do in this situation? How should I act? How should I talk? How should I think? I'm trying to think how Jesus would do this. He's our perfect example. Then verse 27, Jesus doesn't need daily like those high priests, like the Old Testament high priests, to offer up sacrifices. 
first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus, as a high priest, offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sins. How fitting that those gifts that were brought to Jesus included frankincense, something the priest used because Jesus would become the great high priest of his people. And then number three, the third gift, myrrh, reminds us of Christ's death. I understand myrrh comes from a plant that is common in the Arabian desert, so this is something that would have been in the east, something these wise men could have brought perhaps easily, but it was also something that was valuable. And again, you just look around the Bible and you see why it reminds us of his death. Here in Mark chapter 15, verse 23, Jesus is brought to the place called Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. He's here to be crucified. I wonder if they called it place of a skull because people were killed here. That's my best guess. Some people wonder if it maybe looked like a skull on the rock or something. We don't know. But he's here to die. And and some people tried to show mercy to him. We imagine they did this to many people who were crucified. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. It was something that would deaden the pain. You mix this incense type of thing with myrrh, with wine, it would deaden the pain. He doesn't take it. Jesus, for whatever reason, wanted to truly feel the pain as he takes all the sins of the world on his shoulders. And then later, after he dies, John 19, verse 39, here's Nicodemus, who's been a He's believed in Jesus, but he's been so quiet about it. He's been afraid to say anything, so he hasn't really become a follower of Jesus. Here, he steps forward, and he brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight, to put on the body uh, to help wrap the body for burial. Of course, Jesus wouldn't need it for very long. He would raise again. But how interesting that that myrrh that was there at his death was also one of those gifts that was offered to him. And of course, the death of Jesus was something that was prophesied as well. One of the things people love about Jesus coming to the earth is all those prophecies are being fulfilled. The time is here. It's exciting. And so Isaiah 53 is one of the places, the best known place, where we find that the Messiah was going to die for our sins. It says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. He would suffer for us. And Jesus would have all those things happen to Him. He would be pierced by the nails of the cross. He would be scourged by the whips. And verse 7 will point out, He would die. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. Jesus goes to the cross willingly. Doesn't argue, could have argued, probably could have gotten out of it legally. There wasn't much to stand on. The Jews were determined to have him killed. The the Romans just wanted peace and to get past it. Okay, fine, you want him killed, we'll have him killed. Probably could have got out of it. But he goes to the cross for us. As 1 John 3.16 says it, it was the ultimate act of love. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. How fitting that myrrh was that gift brought to Jesus at the very beginning because at his death, it would be back there again, that death for all the sins of mankind. So we talked a lot about physical gifts. We thought about Christmas gifts. We thought about the gifts brought to Jesus, just how fitting they are. I'd like to end our last few minutes this morning by just reminding ourselves, what are the most important gifts? What are are the big things that when you 
drop back and take a big picture view of life, what are the things that are most important? I've got two things to mention. First of all, let's not forget. Jesus himself was the greatest gift. Jesus coming, Jesus living, Jesus dying, Jesus raising, Jesus leading his church is the greatest gift. And it was described that way in the passage Logan read right before I got up here. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. Love leads to giving. In this case, the gift was his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. Our biggest need was salvation. And so God sent us a Savior. And our Savior comes as the greatest gift, the one we really needed, the one that makes a difference in our eternity. And in return, we give our lives to him. It's a gift that we receive. That It, it begins uh, at, at the point of baptism. We receive it. We have our sins washed away. It's a lifetime of commitment. And as Romans 12 verse 1 says it, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, present your life, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. God gave His Son for us. We give our lives to Him. I hope that's how we're living today. If it's not, please let us know. Last thing to say about gifts. Gift has to be received. has to be accepted. Um, if you get a gift tomorrow morning, you don't have to accept it. You don't have to open it. You can just leave it under the tree. You just leave the house and leave it there. You can throw it away. You have to accept it. And God has been very clear about how we accept His gift of salvation. He, he sent Jesus to give us salvation. He, he's made it offered there for us. But you've got to accept it. And that's a choice you've got to make. It's a choice I've got to make. As you pull together what they did in the New Testament, I think this is what you're going to find. Uh, I, I was taught the five steps of salvation growing up. And whether you call it that or not, I think it's a, an appropriate way to describe here's how they became Christians in the Bible. They heard about Jesus. They believed in Him. They didn't stop at believing in Him. They repented, turned their life around. They confessed Jesus is Lord. They, he's the Son of God. And they were baptized in water to have their sins washed away. If you haven't done those things, we hope you will. That's how they taught it in the Bible. When they asked, what do we do? Repent and be baptized was the message. If you haven't repented and been baptized, let us know. We'd love to talk with you about it later. But also, not only does it have to be accepted, it's got to be lived. So after we accept the gift, now we're, now we're starting the Christian life. Now the new life begins. As baptism is described in Romans 6, you rise up to walk a new life. And so now we've got to keep living it. If we can help you in your faith in any way, please let us know. Uh, we'd love to talk privately. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you. We'd love to open the Bible, let you see what it says, and make your own decision between you and God. We're about to sing a song of invitation. And during this song, if there's anything we can pray about, if there's anything you'd like to do to take a public step of faith, maybe become a Christian today, we'd love to see you have your sins washed away in baptism. The church is gathered together, and if we can help you in any way this morning, we'd love to do that. If you have any public needs, please come to the front while we stand, while we sing. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their